Hey, it's Jake. This episode was recorded earlier this week. I'm recording this right now on Friday, June 11th. Uh, we're still all reeling from the devastating news from Real Life Ghost Stories. Of course, our thoughts are with Emma and the entire Is It family, every, everyone over there. Uh, none of us were ready. We debated whether or not to release this episode, but we thought maybe our particular brand of bullshit might be the levity that could help uh, be a distraction for this weekend. Um, and if that's the case, then we hope it does that. Never really know what our release schedule is these days anyway, so we wanted to put this out there for you if you want it. Um, anyway, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again another time. we all make yeah yeah some kind of like sad grunt (laughs) man welcome to super (laughs) the paranormal podcast about the science of the spooky and the strange i am jake i'm white eating carrots that is white eating carrots soon to be wyatt normal uh wyatt classic if you will Thanks for joining us for part two of our special report on cryptozoology. Or if you're just trying the show for the first time with an episode that has part two in the title, welcome, you beautiful maniacs. You you crazies. The general premise of this two-episode deep dive is that we, despite our love of all things creepy and or crittery, have some issues with cryptozoologists and the way they do their thing. Mm-hmm. We talked at length about the flawed methodology of both cryptozoology and paranormal investigation in general in our fourth special report, way back in episodes 50 and 51. So instead of rehashing that aspect of things, we're instead focusing on how cryptozoologists position themselves in relation to quote-unquote normal biologists and on the culturally questionable side of things. Indeed. Ultimately, of course, our goal isn't just to say, hey, you guys aren't real scientists and here's how it's actually done. We mean this as, hopefully, constructive criticism for how to look at all this stuff. And on top of that, we're going to be, you know, tearing conventional science research a new one today as well. So, don't you worry. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, let's uh, get this going with a little recap. So, in, you know, three months ago when we released part one, uh, I used the panda and the tail of its quote-unquote discovery to gently and lovingly scold cryptozoology in general and Lauren Coleman in particular, (laughs) for seeking a claim to legitimacy in an awkward, if even downright wrong, way. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean cryptozoologists in general hold up the empirical discoveries made in other scientific fields as proximate proof for the reality of their own practice. This isn't a crazy gesture on its face. Scientists do this literally all the time with their various realms of study. For example, when writing a piece of publishable work, you are even expected to anchor your claims in the published works of others. Mm-hmm. 
The issue here rests instead in the argument that was so nicely laid out by Colin Dickey, the guy who, unbeknownst to us, was also at the International Cryptozoology Conference in Portland, Maine back in 2018. Mm Mm-hmm who said, like it or not, the most beloved and pursued cryptids simply refuse to offer up any kind of appreciably hard evidence. So to draw an equivalence between a claim based in pure hunchiness and one that can be backed up with things you can actually touch, test, or otherwise measure risks doing damage to both passions at the same time. So on the one hand, you risk generating confusion about what actually constitutes meaningful evidence in support of a theory. And on the other you risk peddling delusions, insisting that what are essentially campfire stories are objectively true or real, despite the lack of evidence. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, whether or not you choose to believe cryptid creatures like Sasquatch are objectively real is not a big deal in and of itself. It's unlikely to strongly affect meaningful things in your life, like your vote, or your conceptualization of people outside yourself, or your cultural background. It's basically just fun. That said, the mind state that is willing to subscribe to a proposition that cannot be objectively supported needs to be watched carefully. It's exactly this kind of mind state that comfy in its uncritical lens can be quickly whisked away into believing much more potentially damaging and conspiratorial theories. All this is to say, if you stay gullible, you're going to get duped. <laughs> and Jake, uh, what, what, what? What did you talk about last week? Last week, yeah. So for my shit last time, very similar to your panda story that you began with, uh, I covered the quote-unquote discovery of the Okapi. Super cool forest-dwelling relative of the giraffe, unknown to Europeans until the late 19th century, and therefore not considered real until then. Uh, the term we often hear in reference to the stuff like this is a species becoming quote-unquote known to science. Now this alone is problematic as fuck, uh, we will dig into that in just a bit, but first I want to take apart the cryptozoology component of this particular story, because that was kind of our initial focus on this stuff. Mm-hmm. The Okapi was unknown to white people until they confirmed its existence around the turn of the 20th century. A couple of explorers had heard talk of it and wondered what its deal was, and folks back in Europe were just straight up oblivious of it. This is not the same as the Okapi being an effectively mythical creature that people spoke of and believed in, but had not yet been able to prove. The Mbuti didn't have mysterious legends of a forest creature the, f- the few living people had encountered. They were just like, yeah, it's around. Like, we live in the same place, so we run into them now and again. Here's what it's called, and here's the best description I can give you of what it looks like. Thus, to call the European awareness of the Okapi the successful discovery of a cryptid is to add even more colonialism to an already very, very colonial discipline. Mm-hmm. Uh, Europeans' refusal to take indigenous folks at their word has worked both ways, too. Way back in episode 28, we covered another Congo cryptid known as, Wyatt? Mokele Mbembe! That's the one! Thar's dinosaurs and them thar's swamps. That's right. Uh, I'll recap a bit about that in the context of the special reports theme during the second half of today's ep. That's where we'll dig into all the problems inherent in not just pseudoscience like cryptozoology, but mainstream science as well. Uh, However, before we discuss that, it might be helpful to understand how this stuff works in mainstream science in the first place. Well, it turns out people are discovering new species almost all the time. Like, all the time. Spiders, bees, bacteria, sea creatures, on and on and on. Think of a group of animals or organisms in general. Typically, about, you know, every year we get a new 
even like medium-sized creature, I would say. Something mm-hmm. on the order of like a small monkey or yeah, something totally. is, is gurgling up from the beyond. So interested folks travel around the world or even sometimes just into their backyards and as they prowl around, stumble upon creatures that simply have not been seen on record before. That's the key word, on record. Mm-hmm. Once observed, creatures described and samples or other physical evidence taken, if possible. And depending on where it was discovered and what kind of creature we think it is, additional efforts may be made to collect more of it or observe more of its behavior to get a better sense for its story, for what it does in its environment. Though less frequent these days, expeditions to less well-explored regions would be undertaken to basically just see what was there. Uh, More about the troubling aspects of this a little later. But suffice it to say, if samples can be collected, nowadays even just DNA samples mm-hmm. from whatever has been found, efforts are then made to more fully determine that creature's place in the great tree of life. So, as exciting as it must be to discover a new species, all creatures can be grouped, classed, or otherwise categorized alongside those that are known across seven levels of taxonomic rank, which I think Jake will cover in just a sec. Mm-hmm. There are seven major levels, of course, but there are actually even more ranks in the form of sub-ranks, but we really do not need to get into that. Either way, usually the the species itself, that's the last thing to be declared. Yeah. So once we identify a new species, as you say, go on those expeditions and stuff, find things. Once we see, like, oh, we, this is a new species. You kind of, you, it's considered, nowadays, instead of saying discovering a new species, you say someone described a new species. That's the way you, right. we... Refer to that Describer. happening. Yeah, um, exactly. It's because it's, yeah, it's just saying, oh, this is the first person to basically put it down to paper, so to speak. Exactly. What that thing is. This does not match what we know. Right. And uh, so once once we do that, we give it a scientific name, also called a binomial name, because it's two names. Uh, you may sometimes hear people <laughs> call it a species' Latin name. This is a needless pet peeve of mine, but I don't like that it's called a Latin name because it's actually often Greek. Huh. But also another pet peeve of mine that is even more needless, the word zoology. Oh. Everyone except me, it seems like, pronounces it zoology. It's zoology? I would say so. It comes from the Greek word zoon, which means animal. You zoon. Yeah. And if you look at the just the spelling of it, it's zoology. If it were zoology, it would be Z-O-O-O-L-O-G-Y. Which should not be uh, mistaken for zoology. Zoology. So that's just a thing about me that you now know. <laughs> uh, anyway, a scientific name is usually something like, I don't know, Pulgonomermex barbatus for the red harvester ant, for example. That was actually honestly a random poll I thought of when I was writing this earlier today. Uh, but it pretty, pretty neatly shows off both the Greek and the Latin parts of the system. Pulgonomermex sounds pretty damn Greek. Barbatus, pretty Latin. I might be wrong about that. I'm just thinking based on how different suffixes and shit sound, that's often how it goes. Mm-hmm. I'm also disturbed that I remembered that name. Uh, that was a long <laughs> time ago that I worked with that stuff. But uh, <laughs> anyway, so that's what I actually want to talk about here is the system for how we name this stuff. Part of describing a new species is figuring out what other species it's most closely related to and generally fitting it into the broader family tree of you know all living things, the tree of life, as you said. The system for doing that is called taxonomy. So uh, for someone like me, who has an almost worrying love for organization, taxonomy has always been very appealing. Uh, Simply put, it's a hierarchy of relatedness. As you said, there's a bunch of different levels, getting more specific. It's a hierarchy of relatedness among organisms, starting broadly, working down to specific. 
Each tier of this hierarchy is called a taxon. The plural is taxa, hence the name taxonomy. Why, real quick, what are the major taxa? Say them with me now. Domain, Domain kingdom, kingdom, phylum, class, class order, order, family, family genus, genus, species. species. Cool. <laughs> and I, I, I did that from memory. Yep. And not from writing it down before. Domain, I remember growing up, we didn't talk about domain, but it, it actually is important because it's like, it's what, are there three? Are there, how many domains are there? There are two in like a, two and a quantum half. domain. <laughs> yeah, the quantum domain, perfect. The RK bacteria, mm-hmm. so, which yeah. stands for really cool bacteria. Mm-hmm. Just kidding, it's A-R-K-A-E. <laughs> <laughs> They're strange. Yeah. I remember back back in the day not being, not including domain in the list, um, so that the, the phrase I had learned to remember it from, from a friend was a kingdom uh, was kingdom phylum class <laughs> class order family genus species yeah, yeah we all know it. it yeah it was very easy was it king uh, philip king philip came over from greece stoned wow i remember it being something along the lines of king philip like can order fudge good stuff <laughs> i like that <laughs> good stuff how about knowledge power <laughs> cox <laughs> orgasm fuck <laughs> good sleep <laughs> sure how about uh, okay go on okay what i was gonna say is uh, like any of the shit that humans do all of these classifications are totally arbitrary but in a lot of ways they work in spite of that fact which you can think of kind of like math like we came up with our system of math is pretty much based on not a whole hell of a lot i mean we have a base 10 system for example each you know, each place in decimals and beyond. It's like you mm-hmm. go up to ten and then you go on to the next one. The base ten system is really just based on the fact that we have ten fingers and toes. So when we were counting shit early on before our writing, that was just the number that made sense for us. Except um, for that one guy who had eleven fingers. And he he had a hard time carrying uh, numbers over. But um, base ten really just came from that. It's it's arbitrary. But the relationship of how numbers work between each other is kind of like a fundamental truth of the universe like just the way things are quantized and stuff which is really neat it's actually spooky a little bit but in that same in that same kind of sense taxonomy also just kind of works like we i guess the differences between levels are a little bit arbitrary especially when you, you talk about how there's sub levels and things get really really hazy when you get into there mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and like the definition of a species is pretty vague it's often referred to as like oh you know two things that can reproduce together and produce fertile offspring right it's like okay so you can say like yeah a mule is infertile it's the offspring of a donkey and a horse donkeys and horses are considered different species a mule is a hybrid between them and it can't reproduce okay that that makes some sense but then you have a lot of examples of species that can hybridize like wolves and coyotes can produce some kind of like you know larger coyotes there's a lot of gray area and then when you get into things that aren't just like straight up vertebrates like what's the difference between two different species of bacteria that stuff gets crazy it does down at that level not to get too deep on it but you have stuff like horizontal gene transfer and things Mm -hmm. like this there's a great book out there for anyone who really wants to geek out on this called the tangled tree of life that talks all about this about horizontal gene transfer and just how you know fluid uh species identities are when you get down to that level of like bacteria and uh single-celled organisms in general it's just wild um and it's quite quite accessible so don't be afraid by the uh concept yeah and so, like, a lot of stuff nowadays is based on genetics. Like, okay, looking at the genome of this species we've just described, 
what does it seem like it's most closely related to? Or is it just a subspecies of an existing species? Right. Like stuff like that you can figure it out based on percentage similarities and geno- genomes and stuff. But before that, we just had traits that you can observe. Like, okay, how? what color is it? What shape is it? Like, just a <laughs> lot of basic yeah. shit. But the cool thing about it is that the way we then categorize stuff does have a lot of logic to it. So you it have... Does things that are like i think um, bilaterally symmetrical stuff is like a way way up there and then after that okay things that Same are on both sides yeah things that have uh four limbs um or th- yeah, things that have things that are uh vertebrates versus invertebrates things that have four limbs and you can get more and more specific and stuff but you find that there's a lot of stuff that have this broader trait in common and then smaller traits not in common as you keep pulling those differences out you get the things that are closely related to each other but not to the other stuff and it it just it has a lot of logic to it, but in general, it is still an example of humans just kind of looking at the world, especially Europeans in in particular, coming up with this and uh, assigning their own system to just all of it. Exactly. I'm actually after the break. I will talk a little bit about how that kind of standardization is so powerful, but also so destructive. Right. So generally, I think that's kind of the the bulk of what we want to talk about about just the gist of how science in the in the context of discovering new species, quote unquote, discovering new species works for this special report. Uh, we're gonna jump now into we're gonna start taking a break, but we're gonna do the stuff that we do that is usually where a break is in a normal podcast, and then we'll that's come right. back with the second half that is uh, a little more depressing, maybe. I don't know. It's more and critical. It's more critical. Okay. But yeah, shall we uh, thank some people who made this show possible? Begin the break. <laughs> yes, let's boot up the Pander Patron Appreciation Neural Dive for Evaluation of Risk Function, which isn't exactly something we boot up. It's something that we run on the NCAA device, which of course is the ancient strange computer contraption that we built slash something that we will now plug into the back of our heads. So the plugging this computer device into our brains directly allows us to calculate through the dark ether uh, what creature, creepy crawly, monster thing in the world our Patreon patrons personally need to watch out for. And today, that patron is Dana, Dana of, Tulsa. of Tulsa. Okay. So Dana, you best watch your sail for... <laughs> The Cameron Village, Village sewer, sewer Blob. blob. Ah, I think I know the story of this thing. <laughs> God. I know what this is. I hate this. Uh, these amorphous, <laughs> pulsating, blob-like beasts seem to have been ripped from the pages of a glorious old EC comic for a bad 60s monster movie. Or, or about a, bad, a relatable reference. Yeah, or a bad 60s monster movie. But scientists say that these mutant subterranean creatures are alive and well and living in a North Carolina sewer. We just don't know what they are. Even though we do. (laughs) In April of 2009, the South Carolina-based Malfris Construction (laughs) sounds like an evil corporation was contracted to send a surveillance camera into the sewer pipes beneath Cameron Village in Raleigh, North Carolina. The purpose of this mission was to check the infrastructure of the sewer lines. According to an anonymous spokeswoman from Malfris Construction, We were asked by our client to inspect the sewer lines, which were built in 1949. Wow, that's a good quote. (laughs) Yeah. This is also like, it's like, that's end quote, and then not another open quote, quote, but then... Because the sewers are so old, 
there were many infrastructure issues. <laughs> this is not advancing the story at all. No. So they went in. They found these gross-looking things. Look like friggin' tonsils. Look like tonsils. They look like a big writhing ball of poopy. People think there's a picture of what seems to be a shugath. Oh my god, that is absurd. <laughs> I mean, terrifying. Artists rendering. Artists rendering. Yeah. In case you thought this was a picture. Yeah. Don't worry. It's <sighs> gross. So what? I don't know this one. You seem to know more about it than I. It's a bunch of worms. Oh. It's a bunch of poop worms. Poop they like. Worms. They writhe. Here we go. Here we go. This picture down here. Annelid worms. They're like little teeny sort of nematode like. Yeah. Wormy worms. Guys. Um, and yeah, so they'll end up in the pipe somehow. Uh, and in the absence of soil, they all kind of just coil around each other to have something to hold on to. Um, the contractions you see, because the, the, in the video originally, the whole thing was just kind of pulsating like one living, muscular, weird, gross thing. It is thing. disgusting yeah. looking. But in this case, it's actually just a bunch of worms, and they all react kind of like if you imagine a flock of School starlings. Of that too. Either Any kind of swarming group of individuals. The reason, like, starlings are, and fish both are great examples because of when something happens, they all seem to kind of just flow in this weird, fluid, cool way. And the simple explanation for that is that when one individual turns or something, the ones nearest see that and react and do the same thing, and that just exponentially moves out to all the other ones in the group, and they all just react in the same way. In this case, it's weird worms. And most helpfully, some have even speculated that it could be living, breathing, animated feces or a creature using the substance as an eccentric shield <laughs> or camouflage from other predators that lurk in the sewer systems. You know the ones. So, so Dana, stay out of the sewers of stay North out of the Carolina. Sewers. Don't go down there. Who needs it? Oh, it's so gross. Ooh, wow. Ooh, it, really does, gross. it seems like you're looking at the inside of a living thing. But it's actually the inside of a sewer. It reminds me of the uh, monster from the third season of Stranger Things. Yeah, a bit. When it's using, like, the reanimated tissues of people. Right. So, um, Dana, there you go. Thank you for supporting yeah. us on Patreon. Yeah, Dana, thanks so much. <laughs> and also, you're welcome. Uh, yeah. we'll, we'll post a link to that video, of course. <laughs> And uh, thank you to everyone who just listened to the show, of course, but also who uh, supports us on Patreon. Uh, all kinds of different levels of support. You can get all kinds of different really cool things, uh, including we got some friggin' bonus digital stuff. Oh, yeah. We, we're releasing outtakes. You know, as, as nice as this sounds, I say it every time. Uh... Yep. And we also have bonus minisodes, which we're putting out weekly. Every time you hear a new episode of this, know that out there, beyond a paywall somewhere, <laughs> is, is more of us talking about spooky, weird stuff. Probably. <laughs> and, <laughs> and also, there are discounts on our sweet, sweet merch. We mm -hmm. actually are one of the podcasts out there who has cool merch. We've had it from the get-go. We're going to have more of it as we go. Yeah. Please do Katie, check it out. SuperDuperStitches.com slash shop. Uh, we have, I would argue, some really cool-looking stuff. Thank you to Lauren Marple and Katie Amaker for Indeed. making that stuff Thank look you, so Lauren. damn Thank cool. Thank uh, Another thing patrons can get, uh, the current cool special deal going on where if you join at the spring Heel Jack level, you get all the digital rewards. That's $10 or more a month. Uh, all the digital rewards plus quarterly stickers, exclusive stickers no one else oh, can get. Baby, you can't baby. buy them. You can't find them anywhere. And... 
because we fell behind on getting these stickers out because everything that happened life. this past year. Yes. Sorry we couldn't make you guys some stickers. God. <laughs> we have three designs all being released at once. And yeah, regardless like of whether that. you were a member back in uh, quarter four of 2020 and Q4. have left, or if uh, you joined at any point, if you join right now as I'm talking to you about it, you will get all three of these sticker designs. And I am pleased to say that they arrived in the mail yesterday and are ready to send out to everybody. And they look, if you ask me, pretty good. I am very happy with how these came out. I'll post a picture on Instagram soon of what the current stickers look like, and you can get them if you join our hot, hot tip for anyone out there still, uh, you know, fumbling with your wallets. One of these bad boys is a full-on sticker to bumper. I had to order a whole bunch of uh, like special envelopes that would fit these inside. <laughs> Huge envelopes that will fit the postcards that normally go with the stickers. Why are they made out of what looks to be corrugated steel? I wanted to make sure nothing would happen to them. So this makes sense. Those will be coming your way soon. They, they will cut you. <laughs> be careful. <laughs> that is only the brave. <laughs> Only the brave take on the sticker. I'm even going to call it challenge now. <laughs> Are you brave enough to get cool stuff? Anyway, we should probably pull these things out of our brains now. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think that's why I'm there still talking. Yeah, I think that's probably what the problem is. Um, so thank you for all of that. And also we want to thank a beer. <laughs> oh, a very certain beer that happens to be joined by several other beers. <laughs> And we're talking about Four Phantoms, yeah, of course. you figured that out by now. Uh, Four Phantoms is a, a delightful little brewery in eastern Massachusetts. They make beer that you can buy. Western Massachusetts. Did I say eastern? You. Oh, my God. Oh, no. It's happening. It's in Massachusetts. You can buy it in <laughs> that state or in Rhode Island. Any place that sells beer. You can also get it from curbside pickup. You can very soon get it in an actual uh, friggin' brick and mortar mm -hmm. storefront in Greenfield, mm -hmm. Massachusetts, which we will keep y'all posted. That may be coming up sooner than later. At some point, we will have to meet up in person. Bunch of different cool beers you can drink when you do so. Uh, those include Dirtweed, a delicious IPA we love. Mm. Oh my God. Purple Potion, which is an awesome boysenberry sour with hints of lavender, which I am quite fond of. And we got <coughs> Hand of Doom, which is an imperial <laughs> stout. An oatmeal stout, I believe? An oatmeal uh, stout, yes, sir. Yeah, quite tasty. And uh, why you want to round it out with your favorite one to talk about? Oh, of course. Battle Standard, mm -hmm. which is a very, very tasty lager, I must say. Not a huge lager guy, but I'm, I've am i been logging a bunch of these on my <laughs> nightly drink journal, which I keep. It's like a dream journal, but Wild Wyatt drinks beers in his, in his sleep. Saw the wizard again in my <laughs> drink tonight. <laughs> um, they have very interesting hops, including Amarillo and American Equinot. <laughs> Jake pulled the mic away from himself as though to pull his earmuffs away from himself. I don't know what yeah, it was the wrong thing with the wrong hand, but... Uh, <laughs> Anyway, um, good they're stuff. They're delicious. Yes. Review them on Untapped. If you do, we might just read it like Jessica Poe, I'm guessing. It says Jess P, right? Jessica P? Jessica P. Pretty safe guess. Pretty safe guess. Thank you, Jessica, friend of the show, who reviewed Bite Back or Blood Orange Sour, another delicious beer that we didn't even just like plug. Oops. I teleported to Western Mass just because Jake and Wyatt of Super Duperstitious told me to. I do not regret it. 
although the bite marks all over me are a bit of an eyesore. So way to go, Jessica. You set the bar, you know, fine <laughs> for everyone else. Pretty direct reference to the beer, pretty direct yeah. reference to the show. Good, good stuff. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so could have been leave, longer. You, if you leave, could have been more off topic. <laughs> if you leave, could have been. <laughs> Uh, sight unseen, beer undrunk, it doesn't matter. It helps them uh, with their profile on the old untapped. It does. And um, and it, we appreciate it. They appreciate it. It's a good thing to do. And it's fun. It's, it's free. Why not? It's fun. It's fun. So thanks, Jessica. And thank you for Phantoms. We really appreciate it. And we love you. Mm-hmm. So back to the show. Yeah. Okay. It's time to get into the ickier side of science. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about bugs. I'm not talking about, you know, slime. We're talking science, and for the purposes of today's episode, biology, as the heir to a ton of settler colonialism. Mm-hmm. So remember how I brought up expeditions before? There's a reason the word expedition tends to carry such a charge of adventure and romance. Even just about 100 years ago, these journeys ostensibly made by Europeans to discover new things about the world would take months or years, present dangerous and even insurmountable challenges, and yield suites of experiences that were, for folks traveling out of Europe or North America, truly novel. But as much as folks from Western communities were learning new things and seeing the world for the first time for themselves, it is important to recall that, just as was so nicely illustrated with Jake's account of the Okapi in our first episode, These quote-unquote scientific discoveries were nothing new to the indigenous peoples of the areas in which explorers traveled. These groups were, and in many cases remain, representative of a massively diverse and rich set of cultures, lineages, and ways of life, each with their own narratives about how and why the world does what it does. Basically, it's as human as it gets to have a lived experience and to then want to explain it to your friends and family. Yeah. That's basically all Western science is doing as right. well. But in these earlier campaigns, and even to this day, indigenous stories, understandings, and stewardship were and are replaced with the Western, Latin, and Greek-centric viewpoint and authority. Right. The justification? The immense power of standardization. The use of a single metric or binning system by which ostensibly everyone on the planet can approach a shared study of life, which is really awesome from a certain perspective, yeah. but also horribly simplistic from yeah. another. It, has, it lacks in subtlety by design. And so this is back to that taxonomic binning that we were talking about in the mm-hmm. first part of today's episode. Never mind the fact that this also erases the narratives of all these other cultures. On top of that, the scientific approach of observe, sample, measure, replicate is by its nature extractive, exploitative, and reductive in itself. Incredible sums of money, manpower, and material resources have, in some cases by necessity, gone into the experiments and expeditions that allow folks from the West to make discoveries, and, and really from anywhere on the, on the planet now. Yeah. In many cases, this is justifiable and admirable. But in others, particularly in the earlier days of biology and zoology, it also presented opportunities for manipulation, profiteering, and downright duplicitousness. Yes. As much as people like to say that science is just like this objective thing that is the search for truth and stuff like that, 
it's ultimately a thing that humans are doing in a very human way and is very, very frequently used uh, as a justification for horrible things. And it's just a way to leverage Absolutely. human uh, agendas. I have a little, a little aside here that I think kind of illustrates some of this stuff. A little something from Scientific American. About to talk about phrenology? Uh, no, actually. <laughs> that would be another example of this awful stuff that is terrible. But uh, no, this is actually a little bit more relevant to cryptozoology. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And I, I teased it up earlier, so I'm getting back to... Um, by far the most well-known of the alleged mystery beasts of tropical Africa is the Mokele Mbembe of the Congo. An elephant-sized water beast said to be a long-necked, long-tailed, herbivorous creature that lurks in deep forested swamps and forest-fringed lakes. Sounds very much like a sauropod dinosaur, or more specifically, mm-hmm. a mid-20th century amphibious, fat-bodied, thick-limbed sauropod of the sort so prevalent in old, inaccurate artwork. Hey, who are you calling a mid-20th century amphibious, fat-bodied, thick-limbed <laughs> sauropod of the sort so prevalent in old, inaccurate artwork, Jake? Uh, and the notion that this is exactly what it has been endorsed and discussed in many cryptological books and articles... Uh, the great animal dealer and showman, Carl Hagenbeck, was among the first to promote the concept of living dinosaur-like reptiles in Africa. And his claim, made in his 1909 book, Beasts and Men, uh, immediately received global interest. It became a mainstream idea, publicized and promoted by father of cryptozoology, Bernard Huvelmans, uh, Huvelmans and his <laughs> followers, I never know how to say his name, and his followers from the 1950s onward. Uh, the cryptozoological perspective mostly holds that Hagenbeck's stories originated in genuine eyewitness encounters with unknown mm. animals. However, mm-hmm. Hagenbeck was almost certainly taking advantage of an early 20th century dinosaur craze that was sweeping the globe at the time. Thanks to paleontological discoveries made in the western interior of the United States during the late 1800s, the museums of the day were racing to obtain and install complete skeletons of Diplodocus, Diplodocus, however you want to say it, I had learned it as Diplodocus, but then I realized how prefixes work. Uh, Brontosaurus, Apatosaurus, <laughs> and their relatives. Huge fanfare and public interest surrounded the display of these dinosaurs, the very first of which were mounted in New York and London in 1905. Mm-hmm. Which, you imagine, seeing a dinosaur skeleton for the first time, holy shit, would that be cool. It's still I cool mean, to this day. I talk about all real monsters. That yes. shit is crazy. Seeing those in person even as adults who have been studying this shit for a long time, is still just it's astounding. It's, it's amazing. I will say, too, this is suddenly reminding me of being a kid watching, I think, the Discovery Channel, and they had a special that covered Michele and Bembe. Oh. And they, there was no actual footage of anything, of course, other than like the landscape. Right. But they were making the claim that this group left like field recording devices and things out there, like just you mm-hmm. know microphones and such. Or underwater mics to try to like pick up sounds and yeah. basically was just the sound of like what sounded kind of like a toilet flushing. <laughs> but they were like, this could be the sound of a living dinosaur. And it was like, <laughs> and I was like on the edge of my seat. I was sort of terrified. It was like so fascinating and like enthralling. So I can only imagine not having the broader context that we have just how mm-hmm. thrilling it must have been to like hear these tales anyway the, oh, uh, yeah. the end. go on right interest in fossil sauropods fueled interest and excitement in living ones hardly the first time that such a pattern of association had occurred a claim has been made that the discovery of fossil plesiosaurs inspired sightings of long-necked sea monsters wonder if that would become relevant later 
Um, and it's hardly the last time that would happen either. What many proponents of the living sauropod idea seem to have missed is that the half-rumored notion of surviving African sauropods originally had nothing to do with the Congo region, but actually concerned Rhodesia, today known as Zimbabwe. Hmm. Uh, Zambia, also in the far south of the continent, was said to be home to sauropod-like beasts during the early 1900s, uh, as was the edge of the Sahara Desert and South Africa. Wow. In effect, people latched on to the idea that any wild region in Africa must be home to living relatives of Brontosaurus or Diplodocus. Sauropod-like monsters were not special uh, special denizens of the Congo region alone, but examples of a sort of lazy, naive view common in Europe and North America, whereby all of Africa was imagined as a homogenous, dark continent stuck in the Stone Age, inhabited wholly by spear-wielding jungle dwellers, where little mm-hmm. had happened since the Mesozoic era. Indeed, an oft-repeated phrase made in connection with the idea of surviving sauropods is that Africa has scarcely changed since the time of dinosaurs. A lot of problems with that shit. Awful. In short, the concept of the Melkeli Mbembe as a living sauropod seems to have originated as a consequence of both a dinomania craze sweeping the world during the early 1900s and Mm. of crass, erroneous stereotyping of African biological history. A view of Africa as somehow more prehistoric than the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. So not only did Europeans disbelieve Congolese accounts of actual species in the area, but they even invented creatures to hunt for in that same region. Both are examples not of honest-to-goodness cryptids, but of colonialist horse shit. And how? So, yeah, it's just it's just how white people have been doing stuff for a long time, and it, it sucks. It really is. Uh, so, yeah, any, any other things you want to cover about how this uh, shit sucks, white? Well, something else that sucks is that the nomenclature that is applied to these living organisms that Mm -hmm. have no name, they are what they are, Mm -hmm. these labels that are made official are entirely Eurocentric. Yep. So the binomial names that Jake described earlier, that practice of giving it a sort of first and second Latin name. Which I forgot to specify is... uh that's how you get to genus species, the last two levels. So the, exactly. the first name is the genus, and then add it on there, and the two together make the species name. Exactly. Not only are they almost exclusively Latin and Greek, further, both these binomial names and the common names of these awesome creatures frequently include white people's names. This is a practice that has long been established as an honorary reference to either the person who discovered the creature or made major contributions to the field in which creatures of that type are studied. And so from one angle, this is just, you know, cute, nerdy stuff, being cute and nerdy. But from another, it's a lot of white folks, typically white dudes, just getting to slap their white names on more stuff that was never theirs to begin with. Yes. So, exhausting... Jake, other things? <laughs> that actually does lead me into what I was going to talk about because I, the naming is really annoying when it's, you live someplace where other people lived first and there are animals and stuff that live there. The people who live there probably had names for those things and it would be worthwhile for all of us to try and re-examine what those names might have been and try right. and use those more. So with scientific names, we have such a, an established system now. It, it It's kind of hard to go back and rename stuff, but it would be really nice to see Newly named species actually acknowledge the indigenous names for them going forward. I will say this is making me think of uh, my own advi- our own former advisor. Funnily enough, I was going to say yeah, we we both happened to work for someone who got to name a species, and she just chose to name it after the people where it uh, was found. So 
go ahead and talk about that there, Wyatt. Which is to say she she described a new species of small carpenter bee. These are the guys that Jake and I uh, study. Mm-hmm. And named it Saratina McMackey for the Micmac people whose land it was discovered on. It's a start anyway. Yes, um, exactly. Reminder, too, that the Micmac are a people of the what's called now the Maritime Provinces of uh, Canada. And, uh, yeah, I, I'll link again to um, a place where you can support Micmac news sources. Or you can cover the whole lobster fishery thing we talked about back in the fall. All stuff nice. going on with that. But uh, cool stuff. Speaking of indigenous stuff to do with the interactions with zoology, cryptozoology, all that, uh, something we haven't exactly covered here definitely bears mentioning just as real species shouldn't be claimed by the cryptozoological community, uh, indigenous spirits and or religious figures should most certainly not be lumped into the category of cryptids either. So very early on in the show's run, we covered the Wendigo, uh, primarily in the context of just the original folklore of what that is and of the phenomenon of Wendigo psychosis. Mm-hmm. Um, I also kind of covered skinwalkers, but not super thoroughly. I also think I had a couple of eyewitness accounts that were meant to involve Wendigos and skinwalkers. Uh, so-called per, anyway per se mm-hmm. yeah uh, but in the end i found that those two things were really just convenient umbrella terms that white people have assigned to anything they see and don't understand especially humanoid stuff in the woods depending on where you are in north america it's like oh it must be a skinwalker right, oh, it's a Wendigo. right. uh basically if it's cold it's like the boogeyman exactly so white listeners you all know how much i loves me a ghoul story but unfortunately <laughs> many many such stories on reddit end up being attributed to Wendigos and skinwalkers by folks with no context for any such thing. Right. Uh, Native American, First Nations, and any other type of indigenous tales are not up for grabs as spooky campfire stories. They have right. a legitimate cultural weight separate from what any outsider might try to claim, and it's important to respect that. I think I even mentioned early on in the skinwalker thing is that that is specifically a Navajo tradition. Uh, what mm. we think we know about about skinwalkers is wrong it's also a thing that's you're not supposed to talk about them that much that's part of the whole deal behind them exactly and uh just trying to turn it into just a scary story is largely missing the point yeah and it's like commodifying and profiteering off of totally separate culture absolutely so for any of the fun tales we like to tell us as a people in general and specifically as dumbass hosts on this podcast uh, it's crucial <laughs> that we examine where these stories originate and what they might mean Unfortunately, that does include things like, uh, you know, the word Sasquatch. Oh, it absolutely does. And uh, I uh, will never read about it again. There we go. I did it, guys. I crushed Wyatt's will. I'm done. I'm going to call the big shaggy guy. (laughs) So Um, let's let's try and and wind this all down, wrap it all up, uh, do something in a different direction, uh, summarize what we've been talking about. I think what Jake is stammering to say is that mm-hmm. cryptozoology is not science. Mm-hmm. Science has its problems of its own, mm-hmm. and we need to actively decolonize scientific work and our understanding of the world if we want to fix any of this mess. Mm-hmm. All that said, it's important to remember as well that we have come a very long way from even just 10 or 20 years ago, uh, let alone 50 or 100. Like so much has changed. We were just talking about a, a species that was named after indigenous people. Cooler still if down the road we can start actually referring to the common names of things by the original names of the first humans who ever encountered those species called them. There's room for progress and we need to aim for that. Absolutely. And in the meantime, the fact that we and so many others are even having this conversation 
is a very good thing. Yeah. This is how this work gets done. Right. We talk about it, we think about it, and we try to do better next time. And it's, you know, testament to the arc of the covenant. The, the covenant that we are where we are today. <laughs> this is this is the way forward. This is right. the way. <laughs> Any other uh, sci-fi we can reference? Um, let me think. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you for checking out this special report. We look forward to doing more of these for you. It's really fun to do a deep dive into topics where we can really uh, science at you, history at you, whatever it might be. Get you yes, some indeed. learning. Flip the uh, flip the chalkboard over from the dry erase whiteboard. Yes. And we hope that you like it because we're going to keep doing it. Yes, indeed. If you have suggestions for topics in general you want us to cover, if you have your own stories you want to share, please send those too. If you have suggestions for a type of thing you'd like to see, dug into as a special report we'd love to hear that too any of this can be sent to us absolutely uh, at our email contact at super duper stitches.com uh we'd love to hear from you and as ever if you're feeling uh feeling a little amorous feeling a little lonesome and you just want to reach out please do consider leaving us a review on apple podcasts much as untapped helps for phantoms your reviews will help this show gain some exposure and traction uh, with their goofy algorithm. And we just uh, we just love hearing from you. It really does make our day. We see every single review that comes in. Uh, and <laughs> we can possibly check them we, all the time. Kind of. And uh, <laughs> they do make us very happy. And you don't have to get super long with it. You can do like uh, math yeah, underscore just, cat. Just tell, us, just tell us nice things about us right. and then d- be done. I think we said it's before you can just put five stars and say show good. Uh, math cat said, uh, funny and smart, five stars. I'm like, LOL. Simple as that. Beautiful, beautiful math cat. You, you truly chewed the math. (laughs) And I guess with all that said, we'll be back hopefully next week. (laughs) Certainly next time. Anyway, with hopefully another episode. Oh yeah. (laughs) And, uh, we love you. Goodbye. Bye.